it's time to lock in. The most amazing, sensational, dramatic, exciting, thrilling finish. Live from Mobile, Sports Radio 105.5 WNSP presents 99 yards away. Win this game for one another. The final drive with Corey Labounty and Michael Bronner. Do your job and play together. The final drive. Live on 105.5 FM and streaming on the Sound of Mobile app. I cannot believe it! Welcome to the final drive here on WNSP 105.5. Still March Madness. Plenty of Final Four basketball yet to come, of course, tonight. You have the UAB Blazers having an opportunity to represent the state of Alabama, taking on Utah Valley, a team that I had not heard a lot from. So it'll be interesting to see if the Blazers can punch their ticket to the championship game in the NIT after their opportunity tonight to play a team again that I had really never heard of, Utah Valley and Michael Bronner. It's a Tuesday edition. We're still trying to get over our brackets being busted here in our WNSP Pick'em tournament. I know I'm, I'm top ten in that. Just for the record. And look, I, I, I'm I'm not too far behind you. And and you know it's saying a lot when we have 35 to 40 participants, but. I know that I'm not going to be gaining any more points because my entire Final Four looks nothing like what's currently going to Houston and playing in the Final Four. Well, I think that was the case for most people. Some people maybe had UConn, but yeah, I regret not putting UConn in there as as many people do the way they look. But it is what it is. Uh, you know, I'll take a I'll take a top ten finish with no Final Four teams. Uh, some might say that. That means I know ball. I don't know. Some might say that. Well, today is like a lot of other days in Mobile, Alabama. You have spring that has sprung and you have rain that goes on, whether it's in the daytime or in the afternoon time, raining in the morning, not raining in the afternoon. You have pretty much all four seasons in Mobile, Alabama in one day. And with that being said, Change in the scenery, talking football will be joining us here. Scott Hunter, Tracy Turner will be joining us here, talking football on WNSP from five to six. As Alabama and Auburn both are in spring practice, Auburn got a little bit more of a head start, but they have quarterback and offensive lines to address. So we'll talk about that, especially in the Tide and Tiger report, but. Today, folks, a little bit of sad news for Mobile, Alabama, as former head coach at Shaw High School and, again, a Mississippi State Hall of Famer, a former stud-wide receiver at Murphy High School, Marty McDowell, 2018 SEC Legends Class, 2015 Mobile Sports Hall of Fame member, Got word today that Coach McDowell had passed away at the age of 63. And going back to my time working at Shaw High School, which is now Clark Shaw Middle School, at the time Coach McDowell was the head coach there and I was working as an educator there, it it really 
you know, every single day you could go down to the gym and you could see him just being a great mentor as far as not only to the kids, but just very well respected by faculty and staff members. And someone that I felt would be great to talk about, Marty McDowell, would be one of his former bosses at Shaw High School, Terry Curtis. The legendary coach Terry Curtis joins us this afternoon on the final drive. Coach, always a pleasure to catch up with you. Just hate when we have to talk about these particular circumstances. Well, you're right, Corey, and uh, I was just devastated. Uh, I knew he hadn't been doing well uh, with uh, the problems he had had and all, but, you know, you, you, you just you just always think and pray that people are going to get through them and stay around and, and whatever. So when, when I got the news earlier today, I was just, uh, you know, I was devastated because I go back with Murphy, uh, to with Marty to Murphy and, and uh, I had graduated and just started coaching at BC Range, but you know, being a graduate from there, I always kept up with them. And one of the greatest high school football games I ever, ever saw was at Legion Field when Murphy played Mountain Brook that year. And, and Marty put on a show, and supposedly uh, uh, Coach Bear Bryant went in the locker room uh, after the game trying to change his mind about going to. Uh, about going to Mississippi State. But uh, that was the start and uh, just kind of followed him. He was on my first staff as a head coach at Shaw in uh, 1989, and he stayed with me two years and then went over to Baker, uh, uh, you know, as an assistant. Uh, I really thought he might get my uh, uh, my job when I left because Mr. Lowry thought a whole lot of him also. And let me just say here, uh, not only was Marty one of the most loyal coaches I've ever I've ever had or been around or associated with, believe me, when he said something to those kids, you talk about someone being a mentor, they paid attention because they knew he had been there, done that. They knew that what he was telling them would help them to get to wherever, wherever they wanted to be. But uh, anyway, he came back to Shaw as a head coach in 97 and, and I do know that first year he had a he went to like third third round of the playoffs, and uh, uh, you know very proud of him and followed him then. I think he stayed there for five years, six years, and then he went to Escambia County for two years and and uh, and didn't like it there. Wanted to get back to Mobile. He was commuting back and forth during that time, and we talked practically every week. And so we got back and was assistant here for for several more years till. Till uh, he, he kind of retired and kind of backed away, but but uh, you can't say enough good things uh, about him as far as he he was just a perfect assistant coach and and he was a good head coach. He uh, uh, you know I, uh, I I love the man. He was uh, he was always uh, just one of my all time favorites. It's one of those situations to where you know the the Shaw Rebel family. It is a tight-knit group, Coach. And, and why do I say that? Because Shaw High School, even though the building still is existence, that Shaw Rebel spirit lives on to all those students who were able to walk those hallways. And, and, and the same thing in regards to, you know, the pride that he took becoming the head coach of, of Shaw and knowing that, he had an opportunity to make a difference in so many young people's lives. And what's electric, Coach? You know, you're so blessed to where 
I, Coach, I, I, you get a little I get emotional thinking about it because Coach McDowell was just one of those guys to where you could always call upon him and he would always give you that fatherly wisdom and words of wisdom. And Marty McDowell was a Murphy High School legend, and he goes on to Mississippi State is a three-time all-SEC wide receiver, and he becomes, finally gets a chance to get into the Mobile Sports Hall of Fame in 2015, and then he gets in that SEC Legends class in 2018. And that just, I know how much that meant to him. And, and this last few years of his life, dealing with all the health issues that he dealt with outside of COVID that, that the world had to deal with, Coach McDowell did it with his chin up, and he showed that he was an ultimate fighter and was never going to give up. Well, no doubt. He just kept fighting, kept fighting. And what people don't realize, too, now, you know, uh, Marty may have gotten overlooked more than a lot of the great athletes that's ever been in this town. You know, he was a second-round draft pick by Minnesota when he came out of Mississippi State. It wasn't like he was, a, a, you know, a free agent or something like that. He went in the second round to the Minnesota Vikings. And, uh, you know, then some injuries and, uh, and stuff like that, which – you know, Marty always seemed to think that uh, some of that stuff may have uh, caused some of the problems he was having uh, in the last few years, which it could very easily be. But he never complained. Uh, you know, he loved to play golf. We would always get on him. He uh, he would have good days and bad days and never real consistent, and he'd get frustrated. But he loved to play golf with the guys. And, and I've never heard anybody say a bad word about him, Corey. I don't care if it's black, white, green, yellow kids, adults, former coaches, former uh, assistants with him, friends, uh, Mississippi State people, whoever. I've never heard anyone talk bad about Marty McDowell. And that right there is, is something to, to, you know, we've all got uh, our enemies and people. We've said things which we wouldn't have. But I've never heard anybody say a bad word about Marty McDowell. I agree with you 1,000% there, Coach. And and not only that, you know, the, the Shaw Eagles slash Rebels uh, family. Shaw I, Rebels, man. Shaw, Shaw Rebels. No, no question about I, I that, Coach. Could, I never could take that Eagles. I, I understand. Trust me, I understand, <laughs> Coach. I do understand. The the the, situ, the situation when you start talking about the, the coach that – superseded him and Joe Lofton passing away a couple of years ago as well. Those are two Shaw legends that that are no well, longer with exactly. us. And I, I think that, you know, you start talking about Mr. Albert Lowry, one of the distinguished principals of all time here in the Mobile, Baldwin County area, still gives back to Hillsdale Recreational Center when he can and wants to stay as active as he can. And those are just leaders within the Shaw community that will never be forgotten. Don't forget John Gray now. John Gray as well, Mr. Gray. He walked the hall, <laughs> and look, he served our country as well. So you, you just had so many legends there, Coach, to Have where – Have a happy day. Have a happy day. No no question. That That's that's Mr. That's Coach right there. You're exactly – that's what he used to say. No, And, and did it but with a smile on his face, too. You know, they had some other guys. You know, the basketball coach, Bill McCroy, stayed there forever. Bill uh, – uh, I mean, McElroy. McElroy. Stayed McElroy. there forever. Bill McCrory, the baseball coach, was there forever. I mean, you went there and you didn't leave. And, and it was kind of like those places now. You know, it was in a community. 
you know, where uh, you had great support from all the, the kids, and you know, everybody could just about walk to school and so forth. And uh, it was just, uh, you know, uh, you know, it really broke my heart too when when they shut down, you know, Shaw High School. Yeah, you know. I, I I agree with you there too. I mean, I just sat and but watched. Marty was a big part of it, and, and that's know, what a it's lot, all about. Lot of people and and. That's what it's all about, A Coach. funny story now, real quick, real quick. I know you, you probably got to go, but uh, when Marty was a ninth grader, his head ninth grade football coach was Joe Loft at Murphy. <laughs> and we used, to kid, we used to kid Joe all the time uh, about not knowing talent when he saw it because Marty just about quit football as a ninth grader because Joe, Marty was one of the bigger guys, and and Joe was playing him at right tackle. His whole ninth grade year, he played right tackle. And, like and people that. don't realize that we'd always forget on we get on. You just about ruined one of the greatest football players to ever come out of Murphy High School because you couldn't see talent. And he, you know, and Joe would come back. Well, he was one of the biggest ones, but but we always kidded Joe about what he about about Marty, and we kid Marty about being an offensive lineman and. And so forth, but uh, you know that's just some of the fun that we had. That was a, a story we always got on Joe about. Coach, you, you you know when you start looking at that tree and everybody you've had an opportunity to be around as a head coach yourself and even your assistant coaches, you know one of those is Coach Marty McDowell. To where when he was on your staff, you just sometimes you know cer- certain things about players that have been there and done that. And Coach McDowell was one of those former Murphy High School Panthers who had been there and done that. He had gone to the big school in regards to how big Murphy was when he attended school there. And he had gone on to Mississippi State and made his name as a three-time all-SEC wide receiver at Mississippi State. And just to be able to give him his Mobile Sports Hall of Fame flowers and his SEC Legends class flowers, I know he'll never be forgotten at Murphy High School and or Shaw or Mississippi State. And I know he was very special to you, coaches. He was very special to me as well, and he will be greatly missed. He will. He will, Corey. And like I say, it's just a, it's a sad day for for high school sports, college sports, everyone, and everyone who had anything to do with Marty McDowell. I mean, uh, when, you had, when you had Marty on your side, you had a friend, and and like I said earlier, I don't know anyone that that disliked Marty or, or or that he said a bad word about or that said a bad word about him. So it's just a uh, you know it's a day that we know is coming, but uh, you know some of the. Welcome back to the final drive here on WNSP 105.5. Corey LeBounty along with Michael Brauner taking your telephone calls at 251-694-1055. And we'll definitely be taking your telephone calls during the Tide and Tiger, or Talking Football rather, Talking Football will start today at 5 o'clock. Talking Football with Scott Hunter. And Tracy Turner. Thank you as well and you can give us a call during that hour 251-694-1055 and I want to thank Terry Curtis for jumping on and giving us some great stories about Marty McDowell and of course last night you had the women's final four that 
was getting ready to to who would punch their last two tickets. Of course, South Carolina was able to do that along with Virginia Tech. So you have South Carolina, Iowa, Virginia Tech, and LSU all heading to Dallas to play in the Final Four. And as Coach Taylor said yesterday, the Texas A&M women's basketball coach, she expects South Carolina to win it all from a women's standpoint. And if there is a Cinderella in the big dance still, from a men's standpoint, is it definitely FAU or is it San Diego State? Because, again, FAU comes in with almost 33 or 34 wins on the season. Can you still consider them a Cinderella? And were they underseeded as a nine seed having over 30 wins on the season? I, they were probably underseeded, but coming from the CUSA, I, I don't know what, what they should have been seeded as. Uh, I think you probably consider them the Cinderella of the Final Four because they're a mid-major and they're a nine seed and they're in the Final Four. So, like, yeah, but you can also make the case that Miami is the Cinderella of the Final Four. Look who they had to beat. Obviously, uh, you take down Drake in a game you were losing, but it's a 5-12 game. Like, it's a game you should win. But after that, it's three games in a row. You're he- almost heavily favored to lose. Indiana had Indiana in that one. Houston had Houston in that one. Or actually, I actually had Indiana in that one, but it wasn't to be. Uh, and then Texas. I mean, you're that that's kind of three Titans in a row. Three teams that were considered, at one point at least this season, national championship contenders. And you take down all three of them in a row to get to the Final Four, and now it's UConn. And I'll, I'll just say it. Maybe I'll be wrong, but they're not going to beat UConn. Uh, but, I mean, they've beaten these last three teams in a row, so why not? Well, I think Miami and UConn, to me, definitely is the game that I want to zero in and I really want to watch because either way it goes, San Diego State as a five seed, FAU as a nine seed, it's not too often that you see a nine seed having an opportunity to punch their ticket to a national championship game and coming in to the tournament already having 31 wins. And what's interesting is, all right, so you say – Conference USA, when UAB loses in the conference championship game and does not get in to the big dance, but now have an opportunity there in the NIT Final Four, and if they punch their ticket to the championship game, what does it say about Conference USA? I I, I think that personally UAB probably should have gotten at large bid, but with the conference that they play in, this year, it probably was not going to happen. Who else were you going to leave out? That was the biggest thing that people had because UAB has set a record for wins in a program history, just have not been able and were not able to get over the FAU hump. You know, it's funny, too. Charlotte won the CBI. <laughs> UAB has a chance to win the NIT. Clean clean sweep for uh, for the Conference USA. Is that is that like what we could be looking at here? Something that you don't see a lot of. Yeah. That's for sure. I I don't th- I don't think you've ever seen something like that. I mean, it's a weird st- you, you determine for yourself how much that means, but it, it it's uh it's at least funny to note. But no, if, I mean UAB winning the NIT would be awesome. But I as for the at large bid, you you're hard pressed to make that argument. I, I, and I understand clearly 
you got some good teams in that conference. FAU is a legitimately really, really good team, better than just a mid-major team who gets an automatic bid. They're in the Final Four. Uh, but at the same time, I mean, who 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 are you going to take out to give UAB that uh, that at-large bid? There were teams, I think, that did get left out that were probably more deserving than UAB. Look at, like, Rutgers, look at Clemson. I think they probably had a stronger case for an at-large bid than, than UAB. 30 wins, is that the magic number? 30 or more wins, is that the magic number? Because Miami and UConn both have 29 wins. And then when you look at FAU having 35 wins, being 35-3, and three, San Diego State has already eclipsed the 30-win point or the 30-win mark with 31 wins. So if FAU were to win the national championship, that would be a 37-3 and three team. San Diego State, not too shabby. They would be 33-6. and six. And Miami and UConn, either one of them, if they win, they will have 31 wins. So, to me, in this March Madness, which has been the wildest NCAA tournament ever, period, to me, not even up for discussion there, you'll have a 30-win team in for sure that's going to hang a banner. I'm going to tell you how the Final Four is going to play out. It's going to be kind of boring, but, you know, if you want to make a bet, go ahead ahead and heed this. UConn's going to beat Miami by eh, 10 won't be a blowout like they've been blowing teams out by FAU San Diego State's going to be the thriller of the final four FAU is going to win by like two and then uh sorry to say UConn is going to blow out FAU in the national championship so we won't be talking about next Monday night when the national championship game is played you better go ahead and get your money in the semifinals because you're not going to get your money's worth in the championship game I don't think so I think I think UConn struggles a bit with Miami and then as long as they get over that Miami hurdle they're not losing either of those teams so I I I like UConn to blow out FAU in a Monday night national championship well I I wish I could sit and argue with you but UConn is definitely going to get in I'm still debating on San Diego State and FAU San Diego State definitely made a lot of Alabama people a believer, made the country a believer, not only knocking off Alabama, but then having an opportunity to knock off Creighton in a controversial game, if you want to call it that, toward the end. But you still had to make free throws to win the game. So I, I just think that UConn definitely is the favorite. But we shall see. That's why it's called March Madness. One of the one of the most incredible turn or the most incredible March Madness that I've ever witnessed in regards to upsets and the way that Cinderella continues to dance. Coming up next, there's a lot of Lamar action going on in the NFL. We'll talk to Valerie Preactor. Will Lamar stay? Will he go? Lamar wants to get out of here. We'll find up next on the final. Welcome back to the final drive here on WNSP 105.5. Corey LeBounty along with Michael Brauner joining you for the final drive. And there's been, or will this be the final drive for one Lamar Jackson and the Baltimore Ravens? That has been the question that's been going on. And last week we were made aware that it was told to the rest of the league that Make sure that you're negotiating only with Lamar Jackson and not an outside 
agent because Lamar is his own agent. And then, of course, on yesterday, it was stated that Lamar Jackson had asked the team openly for a trade. And what better person than to talk to than someone who's in Baltimore who covers a lot of what goes on with the Ravens, Valerie Preactor, joining us on the final drive. Good afternoon, Valerie. How are you? Hey, guys. I'm doing good. Well, Valerie, Lamar Jackson, the saga continues because bottom line is we know he's representing himself. And the last time we talked, there's not been any change besides Lamar actually coming out and said he asked the Baltimore Ravens for a trade, something that a lot of people are saying is probably not going to happen, which may force his hand to go ahead and sit out an entire NFL season. Right. I think the last time we spoke, it was right after the Ravens placed the non-exclusive franchise tag on Lamar Jackson, which we now know in hindsight was just five days after he had requested a trade from the organization. So this all has piled up now and been under wraps for a little less than a month. And the Ravens are now in a position where they still have some sort of control over what happens with Lamar based on what the market may dictate, uh, like we mentioned last time. But it it is such a crazy situation over here in Baltimore. It really is. And I think what's shocking is you would have liked to have heard from Lamar himself without tweeting saying, look, you know what? I I just don't want to play for the Ravens because it kind of makes John Harbaugh when he's hit with it. I don't know what direction it's going to go is what coach Harbaugh said. That's the guy I want to be our quarterback. I'm quite sure you do want him to be your quarterback, but what do you do when a guy doesn't want to be your quarterback? That's the biggest question for the Baltimore Ravens. Exactly. And this motion by Lamar Jackson to take to Twitter and press send on that tweet right exactly as Coach Harbaugh is sitting down in Arizona at the owners' meetings to talk with the press and talk with the media seems so strategic and tactical um, on his end. And we don't know if that was really planned because that was the 32 questions that were posed to Coach Harbaugh were about Lamar Jackson in just 27 minutes of time. But this is just two months removed from Coach Harbaugh and Eric DaCosta, the general manager, uh, saying that Lamar is 200% going to be the quarterback in Baltimore next year. They, they love Lamar. They want him to be here. And that is still the overarching theme that Coach Harbaugh was saying yesterday. And he's confident that he's building the offense around number eight in Lamar Jackson. But you're right, if, if Lamar doesn't want to be here, that puts you in a sticky situation as a head coach, as an organization, to say, well, if he doesn't want to play here, maybe we should actually be so inclined to seek elsewhere for him. And that's why you see them put the non-exclusive franchise tag, because then he gets to test out that free agency, talk to um, owners and other people around the league, even though it's been two weeks since he's been in that market. And we haven't heard much. 
Talking to Valerie Preactor, WBAL up in Baltimore, covers the Ravens, does a phenomenal job. Valerie, this is such a wacky situation, especially now given that Lamar sent that tweet and we know that the trade request, like you said, came almost a month ago. And now everything the Ravens have said publicly since then indicates that they're still committed to getting a deal done. So at, at what point, like kind of like you said, do the Ravens just say, all right, like the guy doesn't want to be here. Maybe we should start mm-hmm. focusing on getting the best compensation we can possibly get for him rather than uh, continuing to publicly say after he's privately said to us he doesn't want to be here. Yeah, and that's the question, too, because the owner, Steve Bishotti, has said in the past that he doesn't want players on the team that don't want to be here themselves. That's that's a disgruntled employee in, in your building. You, that's not going to play well, especially in the locker room. You don't want that. I mean, to, to affect anything that happens on the field. And Lamar can say as much as he wants that he loves the game of football and his goal is to win a Super Bowl. That is all fine and well. We do know that. We've known that from day one. That's why the Ravens selected him all the way back in 2018. But if you look at the past four years for the Ravens, there have been four, actually five now because of Lamar Jackson, homegrown Ravens players to request a trade from the team in the past four years, Orlando Brown Jr., Hollywood Brown, Hayden Hurst, and Chuck Clark. All four of those at some point had been traded away. The first three, Orlando Brown, Hollywood Marquis, Hollywood Brown Jr., um, Hayden Hurst, they all happened within very short amount of time. And we, the, the Marquis Hollywood Brown really flew under the radar for the longest, I think, period of time, and then it wasn't really – out until draft night when he was traded to the Arizona Cardinals. So everybody else happened within their own time. Does Lamar Jackson now, because he has the non-exclusive franchise tag, have the ability to make his own deal? Yes, because he's, like we said before, working as his own agent. He doesn't have that representation. That's its own story now because of everything that's been going on with the NFLPA certified representatives that need to be on behalf of Lamar Jackson that he doesn't have. But long story longer, uh, Lamar Jackson, if he doesn't want to be in Baltimore, I I think the Ravens should feel that they need to maybe look elsewhere and and explore those other options like the Colts, like the Falcons. I know the Jets said at the the meetings this week they're probably not interested because of their situation with Aaron Rodgers and trying to to get him. But there's definitely a way around this situation in in a good way that, that ends happily for all. So it's a weird situation now because, like you said, they placed the non-exclusive franchise tag on him, which if another team signs him to that and and the Ravens don't match the offer, they end up with two first-round picks anyway, which I would think is roughly what the compensation would be, maybe a little bit more, maybe a player in return, something like that. So what? I guess what is more likely at this point that him, or and what is really the difference between him him uh, him signing with another team through the non-exclusive tag versus the Ravens trading him themselves? Well, in hindsight, I think the non-exclusive tag, depending on what other team's salary cap spaces, it could be cheap compared to what he is looking for. Maybe if if he does sign uh, a long-term contract with another team, or even a long-term contract with the Ravens, that would still cost them a lot more than they really are willing to pay at this point. But I think the question then also becomes, you see a lot of people in the media saying, isn't Lamar Jackson worth more than just two first-round draft picks, considering that 
for the Ravens, if they were to, to send him elsewhere, that would just be one draft pick this year. That's another draft pick in 2024, but they only have five draft picks in 2023. They do need more than just one additional draft pick or else they have to play their cards really, really safe. Well, not only playing their cards really, really safe, if you had to pick that magic number for Lamar, being his own agent, which is, again, very rare, I'm not going to say it's the wrong thing to do. I just think it makes it hard for negotiations to take place, especially when you don't want to be with the franchise and the franchise still wants to be with you. That's that's kind of hard to do. It's kind of like just matching call block whenever you don't want to talk to somebody. There's no mediator there. But what is that large number? It's not Deshaun Watson money because, to me, he broke the piggy bank in the NFL quarterback mm-hmm. market value-wise. So what is that number that you think Lamar Jackson will say for himself, this will work, I can be a Baltimore Raven for this number? It's so hard to speculate because there has been so many rumors of different numbers and, oh, they're $100 million apart on a deal. So that definitely makes you think that he is talking upwards of $200 million for guaranteed money. And there have been reports we talked about ESPN's Adam Schefter saying that he was offered $133 million or maybe it was 150, maybe it was 180. There's there's so many different numbers out there, but I think if they got in the ballpark of above or just at 200 million guaranteed, I think that would be a little bit more reasonable in Lamar Jackson's eyes for him. I'm going to ask you a tough question here, Valerie, because I haven't been able to figure this one out myself, but if you were going to make a guess as to how this entire thing is going to finally play out, do you think Lamar Jackson is going to be, at this point as we sit here on March 28th, 2023, do you think Lamar Jackson is going to be a Raven next season? Do you think he's going to sit out next season, or do you think he's going to be playing for another team next season? I think that he could realistically be playing on the non-exclusive franchise tag for the year, and then maybe the following year he may go elsewhere, or the Ravens would hope to sign him to a long-term contract but i do think that we've seen the the dry market that is the last two weeks where we haven't heard much about him getting any offer sheets or signing any tenders or anything like that so i think that lamar jackson may be faced with i know he doesn't want to be in baltimore because he doesn't feel valued but he may be asking an unreasonable an unreasonable price from the ravens so if he has to play because he says he just wants to play he loves to play football he might have to play on the non-exclusive franchise tag for the year. And if he makes a huge run and they win, you know, 12 straight games and they make it to and they, they take the AFC North, who knows? But I do think that the non-exclusive franchise tag for the year playing in Baltimore for Lamar Jackson is a very high possibility. Well, it's a great drama story that continues to unfold in Baltimore and again, Mobile's own T. Martin is the new quarterback's coach for the Baltimore Ravens. And as I've said it, for those listeners who didn't get an opportunity to hear the T. Martin interview right here on the final drive, he said he would love to coach Lamar. And Lamar is that dude and has more excitement and energy than he had in his entire pinky finger. So that just goes <laughs> to let you know, I mean, you have a head coach as well who's sitting down at a press conference saying, I still want, I still want them, I still want them. 
And again, you have Lamar saying, no, I don't want you. I don't want you. So we'll see if this is a messy divorce or whether it gets cleaned up and the breakup is just a prelude to the makeup and the makeup will be that money that Lamar Jackson ultimately wants to make. Valerie, how can people follow you in the ongoing saga that is the Baltimore Ravens franchise right now? I'm on Twitter at Val, uh, Valerie underscore WBAL and the same for Instagram, Valerie underscore WBAL. Valerie, thank you so much for taking time out of your day and look forward to talking to you again soon here on The Final Drive. Thanks. Valerie Preactor joining us this afternoon, giving us some insight from her position there as a sports anchor and reporter at WBAL Radio in Baltimore. Taking your phone calls here on the final drive and make sure you hit us up at the app as well, 251-694-1055. What should the Ravens give up for Lamar? Is it worth two number ones? Well, Michael and I will give our thoughts on that as well as Ken Griffey Jr. getting paid still by the Reds on the other side of this break here on the final drive. Hi, this is Luis Gonzalez, former South Alabama Jaguar and Major League player. You're listening to WNSP Mobile. The final drive with Corey LeBounty and Michael Brauner. We were talking about Lamar Jackson and his worth as a Baltimore Raven. And there's no doubt Lamar is one of those electric quarterbacks in the NFL that you love to see because he just provides that type of versatility. Whether you're not quite sure whether he's going to run it or throw it, and it makes those defensive coordinators work a little bit harder as they're preparing their scouting report. But what do you give up? for Lamar Jackson, Michael, if you are the Baltimore Ravens, because I have to have two guaranteed number ones in the same year. Well, I think I think that that's what's, what's hard. It's not a lot of teams that can provide that, is there? And that's the problem because I mean, of his worth. It's not, necessar- I, it's not necessarily a bad thing to have them in back-to-back years, you know what I'm saying, and just stack up extra first round picks for two years in a row like it doesn't turn me off to that to have two first round picks two two years in a row you know, I, I, own, I can live own. with that as well but so. but what do you what do you accomplish here if you're Baltimore by keeping him because he's flat out let everyone know and he did it in Twitter fashion yeah. a letter to my fans he's not gonna play on Twitter tag. I, that, that's where I disagree with Valerie. I, I don't think he's going to play on that tag. Uh, I, I just don't see it. I mean, the, the way that this negotiation has played out, and not not that there's been, like, nasty bad blood, that like, but uh, between the two sides being the Ravens and Lamar, I, I just I don't see it. And the, his, Lamar's style of play and the fact that he hasn't, Stayed healthy the last two years. If you're Lamar, why, why, why would you play on that tag? Honestly, get. I mean, even if you have to take a smaller number, which you will have to take a smaller number because he's asking for too much. I think that's kind of a well-known fact at this point. But if you're Lamar, I, I'm not playing on that tag. I'd sit out the season before I'd play on that tag. So you would sit out to lose thirty-two million dollars. 
Well, when thirty-two you put, million dollars. <laughs> I, I mean, well, he's his own am agent. I, am I me or am I Lamar? Uh, you got to be Lamar. And put yourselves in Lamar's shoes. Me, because no, I'm not sitting out for thirty-two million dollars. But no, if I'm Lamar's, it's like if he if he plays on that tag and were to tear his ACL this year, I mean, he's never getting a big contract ever. So, and I understand. You know, look at Le'Veon Bell. It, didn't really work out for him football-wise in terms of sitting out the season. Uh, but he's still got a big guaranteed contract from the Jets. Yeah, the Jets are foolish for it. But it still worked out for him. So, I don't, I don't know. It, there, there's a lot of angles here. Didn't didn't get into uh, the Patriots angle there, it, probably because it, it, the prospect of Lamar Jackson playing for, for the Patriots terrifies a, a Ravens fan like like Valley. It should. I, I, I don't really want that. I don't want to give up. The, the first round picks it would take and, and the money you'd have to pay him. I, I'm good on that. Again, he's a great player. He's a great talent. It's just like if I'm a team, I, I, I'm taking my chances in the draft before giving up all these assets and paying all this money to Lamar Jackson. I think he's great when he's on the field, but again, back-to-back years. Uh, we've been talking about this now for weeks. It's just back-to-back years. The guy hasn't been on the field when it, when it's counted. Well, I'll say this. He knows his bank account better than anybody. So if he can sit out and lose $32 million or so, by all means, if you feel you're comfortable doing that, go ahead, Lamar. He's not going to struggle to eat. He, without with that, There's no question he's not going to struggle to eat. But the question becomes now, a year from now, when yeah. you're all ready to sign, you're going to be doing the same negotiating. The, the contract value that Deshaun Watson – received is not going to have changed yeah he's not in any different position a year from now having sat out a season it's just he's another year older is the only difference i guess you could say like oh he's gotten some rest and you know he's re- fully recovered and you know, so which which is valid uh but he certainly is not in any better of a spot uh to demand a high contract after sitting out a year so I, there are a lot of angles there. I, I, I understand the prospect of it's difficult to walk away from $32 million, but I, I would take a cheaper guaranteed multi-year contract before playing on that $32 million tag. Would you love to see him as a Colt? Could you see him? I mean, the Colts that right now. weird, wouldn't it? <laughs> I, I mean, the, the Commanders, that's a franchise that, We'll get into next hour about them being in disarray in regards to multiple groups possibly buying the commanders for $6 billion. The commanders, I didn't even think they were worth that much money, but that's what Daniel Snyder wants to sell them for. But again, Lamar Jackson, it continues to be an ongoing saga and look forward to continuing to watch it because he's his own agent. He controls his own destiny and That's what it's all about if you're Lamar Jackson. Coming up next, Becky Clark joining us to talk about the Lady Jaguars softball program and the success she's had. And, of course, at 430, we'll have Chris Gordy locked on SEC joining us in Talking Football. It's back here on WNSP coming up at 5 o'clock. Sensational, dramatic, exciting, thrilling, finish. Live from Mobile, 
Sports Radio 105.5 WNSP presents 99 yards away. Win this game for one another. The final drive with Corey Labounty and Michael Bronner. Do your job and play together. The final drive. Live on 105.5 FM and streaming on the Sound of Mobile app. I cannot believe it! Welcome to the final drive with Corey LeBounty and Michael Brauner. And at this time, we're going to make a debut here on the final drive, talking South Alabama women's softball and none other than Becky Clark, who's in her 17th season at the University of South Alabama. Coach, good afternoon, and thanks for joining us on the final drive. Absolutely. I'm happy to be with you guys. Coach, so far this season, 22-10, and 10, and you guys this weekend have a three-game series with ULM. Talk about your success so far and the great start that you guys have gotten off into in conference play. Yeah, you know, I, I think that um, we always give credit to our players. Um, you know, when, when we're getting it done on the field, they're the ones in between the white lines and um, we just got a lot of lot of talent, a lot of leadership, um, a lot of young ladies who work incredibly hard and care about the program. And, you know, I think when you have that, that's kind of the formula for success. You know, I think when you have those kind of people and um, they're good at what they do and they care about what they do, then you're going to have success. So proud of them and proud of all their efforts because they've, they've worked really hard for it. Coach, when you go into trying to schedule your conference and your non-conference schedule, I know that with new conference opponents, it makes it interesting and challenging, but your non-conference schedule is always one that gets you prepared for possible postseason play. Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, I believe that scheduling is – that your non-conference scheduling is one of the biggest things you control as a coach that – you know, I, I can look at a coach's non-conference schedule and tell what they're trying, what he or she is trying to do. Um, you know, I think that if you're trying to win at a high level, then you get out and you challenge yourself and you challenge your players. And um, you know, if you want to be the best, you got to play the best. So um, year in and year out, we always schedule a very tough non-conference schedule. Um, softball in the Sun Belt is very competitive um, right now. Our conference is at a six RPI out of 32 um, conferences. So right now we're the six. Um, tough at softball conference out of 32 Division One conferences. So um, a lot of really good softball being played in the Sun Belt, um, a lot of really good teams. Uh, I think right now we have, um, I think, 10 of our teams, maybe maybe, maybe not that many, maybe it's eight of our teams um, are in the top 100 RPI-wise. So um, got a lot of really good softball being played. Well, Coach, one of the things about looking at your roster, I know Coach Kane Womack, when he took the head football coaching job, he said, I have to have Mobile and Baldwin County talent on my roster, just not kids taking up spots, but being very productive. And during your time in South Alabama, you've continued to have great local players because of the great softball that's being played around the Gulf Coast. And is that one of the things that you love hanging your hat on as well? Well, absolutely. You know, I think um, when you start recruiting, you start in your own backyard and then you branch out from there. And, and there is so much talent in our area, um, you know, but kids that are on our roster right now and then um, young ladies that we have coming in to play for us. And then hopefully um, further out from that, young ladies who will at some point come play for us. You know, we've, we've got some really good local kids committed. Um, and we've got some really good um, kids on our roster right now. I mean, when you look at what 
um, Victoria Ortiz from Baker High School is doing, um, Mackenzie Brasher. Um, you know, we've, we've had some players, Gabby Stagner. Um, these kids that are on our roster right now that are in our starting lineup that are making a, a, a huge difference. Emma Crop, um, you know, you, you, there's, there's so much talent in this area. And, um, you know, they are in their summer schedules, playing competitive schedules and prepare, preparing themselves. Um, to play at the Division One level, so it's really exciting to see. We we really enjoy that part of it, and you know we're we're big supporters of that. We're big fans. We're my whole staff is from the state of Alabama, and um, we love when we see our Alabama girls doing well, um, but even more so when we see our local kids doing well. We're speaking with Becky Clark. She is the head women's softball coach at the University of South Alabama in her 17th season. And, of course, Coach Clark had an opportunity to be the Sunbelt Conference Coach of the Year on a couple of occasions in 2011 and 2022 as well. Coach Clark, talk to us about the growth of girls and women's softball because there was a point in time to where you know this was a sport that was really overlooked but when you start talking about in may and june with the women's college world series the enthusiasm the excitement that is generated around that time is second to none well i, I think that it's always been an amazing sport i think one of the things that sh that's changed is the visibility um you know, we're we're celebrating the I believe it's 50th anniversary of Title IX. You know, um, the 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 things the the improvements that we've made from a visibility standpoint. Um, you know, it, it's just it's more people. Our sport is getting out to more people, and it's reaching more people. And I think that's the big thing. I think it's always been a great sport. I think more people are just finding out about it now because of um, the visibility, whether it's ESPN, um, whether it's the streaming that people are doing, or radio that people are doing. Um, you know, it is a fast-paced sport. Um, the young ladies who play it are incredibly athletic. Um, I think that just just the overall product is such a great product. And now being able to get that out to more people, I think more people are, are tuning into that. Well, I know it's just exciting brand of softball that you play at South Alabama. But having a chance to take it from its infancy from the ground up and being able to sustain a program for 17 years. Talk about how excited you are and how iron sharpens iron in regards to, like you mentioned, your coaching staff, all being from the state of Alabama. Well, I mean, obviously I'm very blessed to be here and, and every day I'm thankful that I get to lead this program. Um, I think this university is such an amazing university and, and there's so many great people here. Um, we have such great leadership from our president to our athletic director. Um, you know, I, I think that people make the place, and um, it's so cool to see um, the impact um, that South Alabama has on just the community um, as a whole. So to, to be able to represent the softball program and lead that program is, is an honor, and, and I, I'm very grateful for that. Um, you know, my staff, I can't say enough about my staff. I mean, I I have um, some of the, the hardest working and, and most intelligent and caring people. Um, they care about the program. Um, they care about South Alabama, and they work incredibly hard. So, um, you know, it, it's just a great situation. I mean, I, I'm a big believer. Surround yourself with quality people. Surround yourself with great people, and great things are going to happen. And, you know, that's what we do with recruiting. That's what we do with our staffing. And um, I think that the same can be said for the university as a whole. Just a, just a great place to be. 
academically, I know that it's all about being a student athlete first, and you've produced several academic All-Americans or Sunbelt Conference academic All-Americans. Talk about the excitement about these young ladies getting it done in the classroom also. Absolutely. You know, I think that um, winning is a mentality. You know, winners win, and it doesn't matter if it's on the softball field or if it's in a classroom or if it's in the community. Um, winning is a mentality, and it's a it's a willingness to take care of business. Um, so I think that what they do is, is so impressive. We finished last year with a 3.66 team GPA um, with our heaviest travel schedule we had ever had. Um, so they're, they're missing class, and they're on the road. And, and for them to still buckle down and, and get it done in the classroom. And, you know, we, we have young ladies who are taking very challenging majors. We have a lot of pre-med. Um, we have a lot of people who are in the medical side of it um, who are taking incredibly challenging classes. And so to see what they do from a time management standpoint, just the overall toughness and grit to, you know, not, not use the scheduling as an excuse or the workload as an excuse, but, um, just to, to buckle down and get their job done. I mean, it's really, I don't think people fully comprehend how impressive it is um, to do what they do because it, it really is. It is If you're a Division One athlete um, and you're getting it done in the classroom and on the field, that is a very challenging um, endeavor, and I, I think they get all the credit for sure. The seniors on your roster, one of them being named one of the pitchers of the week in the Sunbelt Conference last week. Talk about what they've meant to your program, their development, and this three-game homestand that you have coming up this coming Friday, Saturday, and Sunday with ULM. Yeah, absolutely. So, for sure, you know, our, our upperclassmen have done an amazing job and continue to do an amazing job. They, they care so much about the program and their willingness to lead and to to show up every single day and get the job done. Um, I can't say enough about them. You know, this weekend's going to be a great series. We've got Louisiana Monroe coming in. Um, they've been playing really, really well. They're well coached, um, very athletic. So we're excited to play them. We'll play them Friday at 6 and Saturday at 3, Sunday at 1. Um, we encourage people to come out and support these young ladies, um, you know, support the, the sport of softball. But I, I will say this. If you come out, you will not be disappointed. Um these are young ladies who are worth your time, worth your investment, worth your support. Um, they are they are quality people and they're quality players, and, and I feel like they're putting a great product on the field. Well, Becky Clark, for 17 years, you've put a great product on the field at the University of South Alabama. You've continued to watch this program grow and thrive under your leadership, and it will continue to do so. I encourage the fans to come out this Friday, Saturday, and Sunday and check out some Jaguar softball. Is 17-year head coach Becky Clark is at the top of the coaching order in the Sunbelt Conference, one of the best in the country and is really dedicated to continuing to grow the sport and has done an outstanding job here locally. And, Coach, want to wish you the best of luck for the duration of your season. And this isn't the last time you'll be making an appearance on the final drive for sure. I appreciate it, Corey. Thank you so much for your kind words. And, um, yeah, I'll just I'll double down on coming out and supporting these young ladies. You won't be um, sorry that you did. And, you know, just ask Jag Nation to get behind them and support them. Um, and then closing out, just saying, uh, go Jags and Jays up, baby. Go Jags and Jays up. Becky Clark, the head women's softball coach at South Alabama, joining us this afternoon on the final drive. Michael, at... 22 and 10, Becky Clark, having been at South Alabama now for 17 years 
and taking that program from infancy. That's her baby, seeing it evolve and seeing the game grow. I think it's a must-watch for Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. And then after that, of course, they're going on the road to Louisiana. And Louisiana has made some noise here the last couple of years in women's softball, trying to knock South Alabama off the top of that pecking order. But just phenomenal softball that Coach Clark has been able to develop. And I just love watching them play the game. 17 years. Whew. How about that? It, it, I mean, it's very impressive. And, and her success is second to none. And you, you, it's hard to find coaches that are able to not only start a program but continue to have the passion that she does and the love and the growth of softball. It's outstanding here in the local Mobile Baldwin County area. And when you see local players on her roster from Fairhope and Baker and Faith Academy, all successful softball programs, I think it's fun to watch as well. And, you know, her bats are not loaded or weighted or illegal, unlike this story that really tickled me to death, Michael. When you start talking about cheating and fishing and I don't know if you saw this story back in September. Oh, you're talking about the adding the weights? Yes. Me and Nick Wiggins talked about this. Uh, Fishgate. 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 But what happens is these two gentlemen have pled guilty to charges of cheating and unlawful ownership of wild animals. Like in a court of law? In a court of law. And what's going to wind up happening is here they're going to be sentenced on May 11th. Oh, no. But to put weights in fish to win a competition, I mean, thousands I, of dollars are at stake. Yeah, New how boats much, are at stake. Uh, how, what kind of punishment are they facing? Right now it says they pleaded guilty to one count of cheating, a felony, and one count of unlawful ownership of wild animals, a misdemeanor. And they had to forfeit the boat that had been used in the competition. So I, I'm thinking if they have... A great attorney, they'll probably get slapped on the wrist. But what embarrassment to be caught with weights in fish. I, I think that, you know, that's un to me, that's really, I'm not going to say unheard of, but to get caught and then to play the dummy or the victim. I, I don't know how that got there. That was, that was, I, a, wild, I, I guess that was a wild video. <laughs> they, they, it really was. They must have just have swallowed it. No, you know, cheating there. You know, Tom Hanks said there's no crying in baseball, and how he said it was absolutely funny. But cheating and, and, and fishing, those are two things that I just didn't think were possible. It's like, but, it's like counting cards in, in, in a poker blackjack tournament <laughs> or what? I mean, it's like there's legit. Welcome back to the final drive here on WNSP 105.5. Corey LeBounty along with Michael Brauner joining you. And, of course, you have March Madness. That means there's going to be McDonald's All-Americans that are playing tonight in the game. The girls play here on ESPN2, I think at 630, and the guys tip off on ESPN right around 8 o'clock. And we talked last week about Kentucky having four McDonald's All-Americans in the game. And what can a McDonald's All-American make you do? Well, it can make you think about transferring and hitting that transfer portal. And that transfer portal 
has opened for both Alabama men's basketball and Auburn men's basketball as both schools have players that are testing the transfer portal waters. Yeah, uh, Namari Burnett enters for Alabama, which a little bit of a surprise. I think it was kind of a known thing that Alabama was going to have a couple of guys enter. Burnett specifically didn't really expect. Um, that one stung a little bit, but it is what it is. And uh, uh, he won't be the last. Un unfortunate, just the reality of the world of college basketball right now is that if you're not guaranteed or at least projected starter for the following season, Alabama has a lot more depth at the position of guard than they do uh, down low. The reality is, you know, the transfer portal is a legitimate option for you. Namari Burnett is an interesting one specifically, and I don't know what his uh, course credit situation is, but unless he were to graduate in the spring or summer, he's got to sit out a year because if you'll remember, he transferred to Alabama from Texas Tech towards ACL and missed all last season uh, and sat out last season at Alabama and then obviously you know played a role this season missed some games due to injury but he's done a lot of sitting so I I, I hope for his sake he's able to graduate and not have to sit out a season I, I don't know if uh, Brian Hodgson plays a factor there if Arkansas State's a school he would he would consider I, I don't know I haven't I don't have any inside information on that uh, but you know for for you tied basketball fans this isn't going to be the last one. I, I won't be surprised if Jaden Bradley hits the portal. I won't be surprised if Rylan Griffin hits the portal. One that would really sting is Nick Pringle, but I think that's a possibility as well. Uh, it's interesting. In the NATO system, because Bidiaco is going to be back, and you know he's going to play that role of five, and he's going to continue to get even better. And Pringle, I, I would be comfortable playing in that role of four and Pringle and Bidiaco is, is a dominant duo there, but just in the NATO system, I, I just don't see it likely that you're going to start two guys who can't shoot. So barring a Nick Pringle developing a three-pointer, which, I mean, you've seen the guy shoot free throws. He shoots them with one hand. I, I just don't see that happening. So I, if Pringle sees not a severely increased role next season, which I don't know if there is for him, I mean, he might be gone, too. Uh, and again, I, that's not to say Alabama's in big trouble because uh, they're losing some guy. It is what it is. It's just the reality of college basketball right now. They're going to get guys out of the portal. The guys they're bringing in as freshmen are, are good players, and it's going to be okay. Uh, but it is a bummer for sure. Well, Auburn has a couple of guys who have gone ahead and gone into the portal today, and one was a four-star athlete coming out of high school less than a year ago, Chance Westry. And when you start, he was a four-star recruit, and he decides the six-foot-six, 190-pound six, freshman, Westry, only played in 11 games and scored or averaged two-and-a-half points per game for the Auburn Tigers. And then you look at a five-star, a, a former five-star Auburn big man, Johan Treor. He decides that he wants to transfer away from Auburn and – he only averaged 2.1 points per game for the Auburn Tigers. So Bruce Pearl, two guys in the portal, only averaging four points per game combined. I think it's a situation for whatever reason, you know, players just don't want to sit and develop at a program. 
And they, it, it's that yeah. instantaneous microwave situation to where I have to play right now. And, and to a degree, I get it, at least for, for Triore and... Again, it's, you have to consider the fact that is there a path for these guys to play significantly more next year? Maybe not. Auburn's got a good class coming in next year. Same with Alabama. And, and you know they're going to bring – the product they put on the court this season, specifically talking about Auburn, wasn't good enough. So you know they're going to hit the portal themselves. So I understand it from Triore's perspective, but it's it, it's such a different – college basketball's a very different game than it was. I mean, Caleb Love is in the transfer portal. For UNC, it's, you, you just didn't see that kind of thing, even just five years ago. It's just rapidly changed uh, the landscape of college basketball. And what's funny is, uh, you know, when this transfer portal stuff was really starting to heat up and, and become a thing, it was like, oh, it's going to ruin college basketball and the rich are only going to get richer and, and it's going to ruin the competitive balance. And it's literally done the opposite if you look at the final four right now i think there's more parity in college basketball than really there's ever been and it's a level playing field i mean you just look at the ncaa tournament Any, anyone can beat anyone and that's just the reality if you can get really good players out of the transfer portal that maybe get overlooked it's like if you're the dukes the dukes and kentucky's of the world can't bring in everyone so it, it, it adds an interesting element of college basketball i i don't love it but it's, it's the reality and, it, you know, adjust or die at this point. Well, you definitely have to adjust to it. And, and like you mentioned, I think that there are so more so many programs that benefit from the transfer program versus those who are not satisfied with their playing time. It's just a matter of finding a home, a home, because when you when you look at Miami's roster and. Omar is the real deal. And we sat and watched him play right here at Arkansas State. And he just was absolutely dismantling the Sunbelt Conference. And if he would have stayed at Arkansas State, not only would they have their same head coach, I think that he would have been an All-American coming out of the Sunbelt Conference. But at the same time, the transfer portal is, is there. Players, it is 20 23 players are utilizing the transfer portal for their benefits, and it's benefiting other schools. You still have to find that right fit for you, though. If you find that right fit, you can be the difference maker in a program to where you take them from being a Sweet 16 team to a Final Four team. So I think that 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 part of college basketball is good. You just – the word loyalty for a lot of old-school players – and a lot of old old school coaches and fans, it's no longer in existence. Yeah, and, and that aspect is sad, and it is what it is. But I I, I do get it. I, I I do see both sides of it. There, it's like, I mean, Namari Burnett is a really interesting example because that's a guy that you have to assume was going to play a pretty major role on this Alabama team next year. And let's say. He goes to Arkansas State next year. You you understand that because he has a relationship with Brian Hodgson. You know he's an instant starter on that team. Again, I he's got to graduate because if he doesn't graduate, he's going to have to sit out a year. Uh, so if he wants to sit out a year, okay, I guess. Uh, but so you you understand it. But that that loyalty word 
it looms there, and it certainly is missing from from what it once was, and it's it's just the reality of college sports in in the year of 2023. It's it's only gonna keep going from there. And it's across the board. It's not just in basketball. You you see it happening in football all the time. But the biggest thing, like you said, is being that grad transfer. And what makes this whole situation interesting too, Michael, is that fifth year of COVID eligibility that a lot of these players received after 2020 that is getting ready to roll off that these incoming freshmen no longer have that option of. They're stuck with having to have that one transfer and then being a graduate in order to attend three schools. You're listening to the final drive here on WNSP 105.5 with Corey Labounty and Michael Brauner. This is George Pada, thanks coach of the Houston Astros, and you're listening to WNSP. Welcome back to the final drive here on WNSP 105.5. Michael Brauner taking your telephone calls at 251-694-1055. And, of course, you can hit us up in the app as well. And Locked On SEC's Chris Gordy joins us this afternoon on the final drive. And, Chris, plenty of things going on in the SEC. I know I had Joni Taylor on yesterday, Texas A&M women's basketball coach, giving us a small preview of will South Carolina continue to be undefeated and win it all. And it just means more in the SEC's mantra. And, of course, the SEC didn't have any men's basketball teams that can make it to the Final Four. But it still means more when you start talking about overall as the SEC and the success that they've had this season. Yeah, it does. And, um, you know, it's funny. Uh, at when LSU women won on Sunday, Kim Mulkey made a comment and said, uh, you know, she said, uh, no offense to Maryland, but South Carolina is going to win. And some people kind of took that as, oh, is she trying to jinx South Carolina? Is she trying to? give Maryland some bulletin board material. Uh, I, people I've talked to said, no, that was coming from a place of Kim Mulkey just tells you how it is sometimes. And she know, she played South Carolina a few weeks ago. She knows they're the best team. And so, uh, yeah, so it was fortuitous. It was good that the South Carolina took care of business. And now here we are, 50% of the women's Final Four are from the SEC. And, you know, I still think South Carolina is the best, uh, the best team out there. So if she could pull off a uh, – an upset of Virginia Tech, you know, we'll get an all-SEC championship uh, game. Um, you know, I think South Carolina, as good as Caitlin Clark is at Iowa, I think, uh, I think we, South Carolina is going to advance, and uh, if LSU can pull one off against Virginia Tech, we'll get the full uh, SEC versus SEC. And that said, I mean, think even if it's LSU-South Carolina championship, I'd put South Carolina as about a 10, 11-point favorite in that one. So it'll be fun, but, uh, yeah, it's, it's crazy for the two dynamics. One, to see the, the dynasty that Don Staley has built at South Carolina. I mean, they are on another level with all the four and five stars they have. But what Kim Mulkey's been able to do in just year two at LSU to take them from all the years of drought, postseason drought to year two to the Final Four, she is definitely ahead of schedule. So, it's been a lot of fun to watch, and yeah, to your point, maybe the men have something they can learn because uh, everybody getting ousted at Sweet 16 weekend was not fun to watch. Well, Chris, that's kind of exactly what I was about to bring up. We had three SEC teams in the Sweet 16, and that came to a swift conclusion with uh, Tennessee, Arkansas, and 
unfortunately, Alabama. Uh, how, how much? I'm just curious how much stock you kind of take into. I, I mean. Obviously, the Conference USA isn't one of the best conferences in college basketball. I don't think the ACC is one of the best conferences in college basketball. The Big East certainly is. But I'm just curious, at, at what point, like, at what round do you kind of think that, all right, like, these these are the teams from the best conferences in college basketball? Yeah, uh, I mean, it, it's hard to say. I mean, normally in a normal year, right, we, we, we have the fun – uh, first couple rounds of upsets and Cinderellas, but normally by the time we get to Elite Eight and Final Four, we want the Blue Bloods. We want the Villanovas, uh, Carolinas, Dukes, Kentuckys. Like, we want those teams. People want to see the best of the best. Is San Diego State and FAU two the best teams in the country? I don't know. I mean, we'll, I hope they put up some entertaining performances this weekend and we, and we get a good Final Four, but um, you know, are they more talented than Florida or than Kentucky or Alabama? No, uh, by any means. But obviously, they they won when they needed to most, and they're here for a reason. But um, you know, I look at what the SEC is doing right now. Kentucky is, is, I mean, they've got by far and away the number one recruiting class for next year, and Calipari has done a, a real good job there. Now, I will say a little bit different. The recent classes Kentucky has had, they've had some good players, a couple of four stars here and there a five-star thrown in, but this is overwhelmingly one of his best classes that, that he's brought in the past decade. So uh, Kentucky should be the real deal next year. And then I look at some of the other SEC teams, and it's all the usual suspects. It's Alabama, it's Tennessee, it's Missouri. They're all right there in the top 25 with their classes. And, you know, maybe get a couple more names thrown in, and they'll, they'll climb up the rankings too. But, uh, you know, if I'm looking towards next year, yeah, I think Bruce Pearl will be back, at, you know, and Auburn will be back in the tournament. I think Bama will be back in there, uh, Tennessee. But, you know, can those teams, you know, is there a Brandon Miller in the mix? Is there somebody that can take them to the next level and, um, and have a chance to win a title? We're going to see. But, um, you know, I'd like to see more SEC teams get into the top ten rankings in the college basketball uh, recruiting because, obviously, um, you know, that's a big part of uh, – of building a team that, that goes far, except for this year. You know, in FAU, they don't have any McDonald's All-Americans. But, um, but yeah, typically in a normal year, you got to have those guys. Well, I know in my bracket, I did have Alabama, Marquette, Gonzaga, and Houston in the Final Four. And, of course, it looks nothing like that now. And you mentioned <laughs> about the McDonald's All-Americans. And we mentioned earlier in this show tonight when the McDonald's All-American game is played, Kentucky having four of those and the transfer portal being open to a lot of players. But when you have four McDonald's All-Americans, which normally signifies one-and-done type of players, can Coach Cal put the type of team together next year to where his job is not in jeopardy and he's in the hot seat in Kentucky? Yeah, I mean, it, well, it, it's funny how everything kind of changed for him here, uh, you know, down the stretch of the season. I mean, there was a point in the year where we were talking about Texas uh, coming and, and maybe making a run at him, and that, you know, Kentucky was kind of, it was going to be one of those things like, hey, if you could please leave for another job, that would be great. But he kind of rebounded and, and, again, won a tournament game. I thought that was important because Kentucky hadn't done that in a couple of years. In fact, I think had they not won that first-round game against Providence, uh, my wife was Kentucky. She reminded me that the scene, graduating seniors at Kentucky this year would have went an entire four years of not advancing in the tournament. And uh, that would have been pretty crazy because Kentucky doesn't go through four-year droughts of not, not even winning a tournament game. So, um, yeah, I, I think they'll – I mean, this, 
look, Cal has no excuses with this group. If he if he brings in all these big five star McDonald's All Americans and they can't get to at least a Sweet 16 or Elite Eight next year, then he's got bigger problems. And uh, you know, the game may have passed him by, and and that may be a hard discussion to have uh, with Kentucky next year. But yeah, uh, you'll get a glimpse at him tonight at, at some of the special talent they have in the McDonald's All American game. Chris, switching from basketball to football, can you recall a time in the SEC to where there were so many unknowns going into spring training or spring practice for so many of these SEC schools? Of course, Auburn, you, you, no one has a clue. Alabama, you, you've seen a little bit in a glimpse, but you're not quite sure. Kentucky has holes to fill. Florida has holes to fill. Is, is there ever been that, this many quarterbacks that have had to been replaced and that quarterbacks really are the center focus of a lot of all-season SEC play? Well, I, I think we're actually, I mean, outside of Alabama and Georgia, I mean, I think most of the other teams have kind of their quarterback situations figured out or, or at least have a, an idea of where they're going to go. Um, you know, Alabama and Georgia, I think they both like the groups that they have, but we just don't know who the starter is yet. I, I know a lot of momentum is going towards Ty Simpson at Alabama. And I know some people in Georgia think Carson Beck probably has the upper hand right now, but we're going to see as it plays out. But everybody else, I mean, for Arkansas to bring back K.J. Jefferson is big. Uh, Will Rogers back at Mississippi State. Jaden Daniels back at LSU. A lot of the big schools in the SEC already have the quarterback thing figured out. It's just, you know, they have some other big questions elsewhere. And to me, it was the, uh, the coordinator turnover we had in the conference this year. I mean, Alabama's got a new OCDC. Uh, you know, Auburn's got a whole new coaching staff. Uh, you know, you go up and down the the line and there's a lot of schools with new coordinators Todd Duncan left Georgia so it's just that that to me is going to be the bigger storyline is you know how different does uh, the Mississippi State offense look with a new OC and Mike Leach out how different does uh, Arkansas's offense and KJ Jefferson look with Dan Enos back in the program so to, to me it's going to be the OC and DC changes and you know, what, what kind of implementation do they have in the playbook that, that makes these teams look different? You know, players we saw successful last year in one system, are they more or less successful with a new OC call in plays? That's going to be fascinating for me to watch. It's been early to ask this. We're talking to Chris Gordy, locked on SEC. But is, the, is there a team you see either in the SEC East or West that could potentially be this year's version of, I guess, Tennessee from last year and, and surprise everyone and at least compete for a college football playoff spot? Well, the team to me to watch is, is, I mean, is LSU to me is just one to watch. I know it's weird saying that because they won the SEC West last year, but they had a, a couple of losses down the stretch of the year. I look at their season next year as as long as they take care of business against Florida State in the season opener, it's a one-game season for LSU, uh, and that's the game in Tuscaloosa against Alabama. If they can find a way to win that one, man, they really put themselves in the driver's seat in a great spot to make the playoffs. Because let's just assume that they play Georgia in the SEC title game and they lose again like they did this year. In that situation, it would be a one-loss LSU team making the playoff. Um, you know, conversely, Alabama, I look at it as, you know, they got a couple of pitfalls in their schedule, but if they take care of business, even with one loss, they can be in the hunt for uh, – for a, uh, a playoff, and really that's what Tennessee was in. Until they went and laid the egg against South Carolina, they would have found their ways probably into the playoff this year ahead of uh, you know maybe a TCU or, or somebody like that. So that's going to be fun to watch uh, as we go along. But, you know, like a dark horse, maybe a team that could jump out of nowhere. I mean, if Devin Leary coming over from NC State is the real deal at Kentucky with some pieces they brought in, Ray Davis, the, the Vanderbilt running back transfer, he was top five in the SEC in rushing last year. 
Uh, they they still got some really talented, you know, young wide receivers uh, like Dane Key at Kentucky. So, you know, if Mark Stoops could get that defense back up to par, they could maybe be that surprise team in the East this year. But again, I think most people are going to default back to Georgia and Alabama as the the two picks. But to me, Tennessee and LSU, I think, are both going to have a say in this thing before it's all said and done. Well, we want to thank you for your time this afternoon, Chris. And how can people follow everything when you're locked on the SEC the way you are? Yeah, guys, just locked on SEC wherever you get your podcast. Of course, we've got the video version on YouTube. You definitely want to check out tomorrow's edition of the show. It'll drop uh, overnight. Uh, got a recruiting expert coming on, uh, John Garcia, and he does a tremendous job. We run through some of the big additions in recent weeks that Auburn has picked up and Florida and Ole Miss and he gives a great look at the landscape of recruiting, uh, looking ahead at the 2024 class and the future of the SEC. So go check that out at uh, Locked on SEC. Chris Gordy joining us this afternoon on the final drive, and you're absolutely right. John Garcia, Jr., the best in the business, and he's a walking, talking encyclopedia as far as recruiting is concerned. But, Chris, thank you so much for your time this afternoon. We look forward to talking to you again next week. All right. All right. Thanks, guys. The final drive here on WNSP 105.5. We'll come back for our final segment before we're talking football here on WNSP. Of course, talking spring football because Alabama and Auburn both have officially hit the practice field and Auburn's been at a little bit longer, but talking football coming up at 5 o'clock here on WNSP. Taking your telephone calls, 251-694-1055 is how you can reach us. My name is Robert Brazil. I'm from the class of 2018 Pro Football Hall of Fame. You're listening to WNSP. Welcome back to the final drive here on WNSP 105.5. Corey LeBounty along with Michael Bronner here at WNSP. And we started off today's show with some sombering news about Mobile's own Marty McDowell passing away at the age of 63 years old and being a former Murphy High School wide receiver who went on to be a three-time All-SEC wide receiver at Mississippi State, a 2015 Mobile Sports Hall of Fame member, a 2018 SEC Legends class for the Mississippi State Bulldogs. Marty McDowell was that guy. And Terry Curtis joined us in the first hour to talk about Marty McDowell's time with him as an assistant coach when they were at Shaw High School. And it's just one of those one of those situations that really hit you in the gut today because Marty McDowell meant so much to Mobile, Alabama, meant so much to Mississippi State's family. Again, being their all-time leading wide receiver for so long and being having an opportunity to be in the 2018 SEC Legends class Walking the halls with him at Shaw High School, Coach Curtis said it as well. Did You just didn't hear anybody have anything bad to say about Mobile's own Marty McDowell. And I know that he's struggled health-wise the last few years. Has not been easy for him. He was, he was not even able to drive a car the last three or four years of his life. 
And if you had an opportunity to see Coach McDowell as a head coach, then you knew the type of relationship that he had with his players, not only at Shaw, but when he was an assistant coach at Murphy High School for Muskegon Barnes, when Muskegon got the job, having an opportunity to maybe not physically be able to coach the way he would have liked to, but mentally everybody was drawn into everything he had to say. And can't forget that Coach McDowell is how I'm always going to remember him and call him Coach McDowell because I was on the faculty when he was the head coach at Shaw High School and how much he does mean to all the Shaw Rebels and Shaw Eagle families and friends, but how much he, Marty McDowell meant to Mobile, Alabama, because he could absolutely light up a room when he walked in it. And Marty McDowell passing away at the age of 63 years old, but what he was able to accomplish while he was with us second to none. I'm just so glad that he had an opportunity to get some of his flowers while he was still living meaning given all the accolades that he really deserved. And I mean, uh, even though he's a Pensacola native, he was a Mobile guy graduating from Murphy High School and, and taking great pride being a Panther and then also being drafted by the Minnesota Vikings. Took great pride in that. His players did. His former assistant coaches did. And I know as a friend, he'll be greatly missed here in Mobile Alabama. Marty McDowell, may you rest in peace. is Talkin' Spring Football on the Sports Station, 105.5 FM and WNSP.com. Stay tuned as we take you to the practice fields in Auburn and Tuscaloosa as players begin their campaigns to be on the field and not on the bench this fall. Brought to you by Bayou Fasteners and Jordan Automotive. Call now at 694-1055 or join the discussion on the WNSP app. The Talking Spring Football here on WNSP 105.5, and I couldn't be any more <laughs> excited and elated to be in the booth with Scott Hunter, the legendary Scott Hunter, talking spring football from an Alabama standpoint. And of course, we have Tracy Turner on the cell phone, not able to join us today, but Scott. Alabama has started spring practice. Wait, wait a minute now. Let's, let's do an official welcome oh, here. Uh, we, we love it. To talking, T-A-L-K-I-N apostrophe, <laughs> spring football. As you know, we do talking football during the fall, but we add spring in, into that little thing uh, in the spring. And so the listeners have been nice enough over the years to ask us to do not only talking football, of course, but talking spring football. So we get, I guess, what, six or so 
Uh, weeks. Keith is in here yes, to talk sir. about that. So, but I want to welcome you aboard. I've listened to you on a few occasions there, and uh, you're doing a great job, and, and uh, looking forward to working with you. Now, this, you know, for talking football talk, and talking spring football, not so much talking spring football, but talking football may be the longest-running program sports program, of course, around here because Lee Shavanian approached me back when I got out of the NFL in 81-ish or so. And we started doing talking football then, and lo and behold, it's stayed on ever since then. So, Welcome aboard the Talking Football to you. I'm excited <laughs> to be a part of Talking Spring Football. And then when we move into August and September, Talking Football and two great guys that are part of this program have been steadfast and Sky Hunter and Tracy Turner. And when we jump right into Alabama and what they're doing here in the spring and what they're trying to accomplish, so far Alabama has four practices underneath their belt. And Scott, when you're a player, the biggest part of spring is not necessarily finding your way onto the top of a depth chart, but just trying to improve, trying to learn the system, yeah. especially with incoming players and the roster turning over. Well, certainly incoming players, particularly since so many high school players now skip their spring and come on to, to college uh, to go to spring training and start it out w with the, the college team they've signed with. Um, you hit it on the head. That is learning what to do, when to do it, how to do it, and all those things you've got to get done before you can actually compete uh, for a job and obviously make a, you know, make a first team or a second team and be a part of the plan for the fall, as we were talking about before we came on the air. You know, spring training is sort of uh, – it's not so much uh, a, a coach or a coordinator or even Coach Saban looking for any game planning or who can run uh, the power play off, off the eight hole. It's okay. What can each individual player learn and prove on and do? And when we find out who that is after spring training, we'll start planning towards August and fall when we start putting together the, the grand plan uh, for the particular games. And, Tracy, I know you being part of – talking spring football Auburn with a brand new staff in regards to Cadillac Williams being that familiar face and the juice that he brought to the Auburn program but Auburn getting started a couple of weeks ago I know that the development there they had the spring break in between the first week of practice and after the break then they got after it again but the Auburn family has been reinvigorated by having a brand new staff on campus. Well, I think the Auburn team has been reinvigorated by the fact that uh, three of the five offensive line starters weren't there last year. Uh, you know, most of the coaching staff wasn't there. They finished yesterday their 10th practice of spring, and, uh, you know, they're still trying to get themselves acclimated. That would be a good word considering some of Coach Freeze's words, but acclimated to the way that he does things and the way the new staff does things. So uh, they, don't have to, they don't have to play another team in, in the, the next 10 days, but they sure have to get ready to play one at the end of August. So we're going to see how that goes. Well, Tracy, not only at Auburn dealing with a brand-new head coach, the overall pulse of the Auburn program, I know Coach Harson 
was not necessarily, I'm not going to say a fan favorite, but I will say that covering high school athletics down here, you just didn't see a lot of presence from he and his staff. And I think that changed immediately. And that was one of the biggest addresses that had to be addressed by Auburn was from a recruiting standpoint and a visibility standpoint, taking the state of Alabama back from Nick Saban, which Auburn once dominated prior to Nick Saban arriving. Well, there was that time when everybody talked about that fear of the thumb and that kind of stuff that Auburn got at least their share. But but through the years, Auburn is not going to dominate Alabama and State. And, and if you have 10 high school players in Alabama that can play at the level you have to play at to win in the SEC, if Auburn gets three from Alabama and they get five from Georgia and they get four from Florida and they get two from Mississippi, that's the way, you know, Auburn has always done it. And now it might be a little different because Alabama has so opened up. They're, they're not uh, necessarily having to depend on the state of Alabama. In fact, I think, Scott, you said at the end of uh, talking football right around signing date, it's the first time ever that there's more players uh, on the Alabama uh, roster that are from outside the, the south and the state than they are on, you know, from inside. So that, that might mean that Auburn under the right coach and, and this guy and this staff understands the kind of work that it, you have to put in, the relationships – Look, just like you have relationships in your business and Scott has relationships in his business and I have relationships in other, the coaching is no different. And you cannot ignore high school coaches and staff. You have to continue to have those relationships, even if the coach is uh, not necessarily going to be your best friend, you don't want him to be your enemy. And the prior staff had lots of coaches in the state that he never saw. It can't be that way. You, you, you have to see them all, even if you're never going to get a player from, you know, my old high school, Washington County High School, you're not going to get one, but ever 40 years, you still have to go. And uh, this staff knows that. Uh, I, I quickly give you a story. When Coach Freeze, they were setting everything up because, you know, they'll, they'll, they all of the, of the, of the new way it is where you can, you can have sponsorships and everything. So he goes to, uh, the Baumhauer Wings up in Auburn where they had, uh, the Tiger Talk on, on Thursday, Tuesday nights, I guess. The, the, the manager says, well, Coach Freeze isn't going to be like Coach Harson was, huh? And just pre recorded and not show up, is it? That Thank gives you an example of how it was and how it's changed. That that's definitely a positive for the Auburn Tigers. And Scott, you and I were talking prior to us coming on the air about Alabama not necessarily having a new head coach and a new coaching staff, but having new coordinators and what the purpose of spring football is when you do have a brand new offensive and defensive coordinator. Uh, yeah, obviously um, the offensive and defensive coordinators aren't game planning so there's not, none of that to be done so spring training though is a is the time for the coaches and particularly new coaches uh, such as the new offensive and defensive coordinators to look get a look at the players get familiar with them uh, think about what they can do 
in their system when fall comes. Now, the player won't be so much uh, bear the brunt of that, but the coaches will be saying, okay, uh, when fall comes, I think I'll start working this guy at our fifth DB uh, because I think he can come in and cover a third receiver and so forth. Uh, he'll be he'll be kind of planning that through his head. But the player himself, uh, he's just out there to get better every day on all the things the coaches are teaching him to do. And you got to get all those little things done uh, before you can go on to the big things in the fall, which are game planning and such as that. You know, the way I treated every spring, even my when I got to my senior, going into my senior spring training, is I never even thought about uh, what was going on with the total system. What I thought about is how can I get better at getting football, getting back to throw, setting up, reading coverages, getting rid of the ball quicker, uh, to the open receiver and those sort of things. So I was working on the quarterbacking fundamentals. And uh, frankly, that's how you get good enough in spring to be able to compete in the fall for, for the starting job. If you don't do that, you're not going to certainly uh, compete when August comes around for a starting job. I think the starting – Go ahead, Tracy. Let, let me ask a let me ask a quick question. I'm sorry, I'm here, guys. We got a family issue. I was supposed to be there, but I know in times past, Coach Saban has told the coordinators, "I'm not going to make 85 guys learn your system. I'm going to make you learn the terminology of our system because it's easier for one to learn than 85 to learn." Do you know if he did the same thing with these two coordinators and made them learn the Alabama? And, and what I mean by the system is play calls and numbers and, and what a defense is, or if Coach Saban allowed these new coordinators to actually change the terminology. No, there was no change in terminology. And, uh, yeah, the defensive coordinator comes in. He's worked with Saban before. He knows that system and several other systems. So uh, terminology is not so much an issue to him. Now, the new offensive coordinator coming from Notre Dame, um, obviously they may have had different calls and different terminologies and so forth. But, you know, it's not hard for a guy like that that has worked in college football, I guess, what's he, 34, 30. So it's not hard for him to pick up a, a terminology uh, pretty quickly, and so therefore don't burden the players while all having a you know to to learn a new system. I, I think that new system comes in when the team is a losing team, you know, they haven't done anything much, and say you're the brand new coach at Colorado, and you sure as heck don't want to keep the terminology and and everything that the former coaches had there because you don't want anything you're doing associated with uh, what was going on there in the past. So there will be a wholesale 100% change in everything well, when you take over, you know, like the guy that has done at Colorado. But as far as Alabama, it's up to the new coach to find to read that playbook and get familiar and, and move on. And, Tracy, it I think – It makes sense, doesn't it? It's easier, it's easier to teach one than it is to teach 85. I agree with you, Tracy. I think that that's an outstanding question because that's one of those things that coaches really look, especially Nick Saban being the GOAT. You know, you're going to – his benefit right here, I think that 
having Kevin Steele being familiar with that program, there's no new verbiage for Kevin Steele coming into Alabama's program. He may have to rewire as far as, okay, I use this at Tennessee or I use this at Texas, wherever his last stop was. But knowing Nick Saban, it did not take him long to get back into that film room and to know the type of calls that Nick Saban wants defensively. And Tommy Reese on offense, I think that both Alabama and Auburn, when we come back from this break, we can talk about brand new quarterbacks for both squads because not only do you have a new offensive and defensive coordinator at Alabama, you're going to have a brand new quarterback. And at Auburn, is their current quarterback on campus that's going to be starting for them in the fall. So a lot more to talk about. Talking spring football with Scott Hunter and Tracy Turner here on WNSP 105.5. This is Jimmy Ripple from Gator Boys, and you're listening to WNSP on 105.5. Talking Spring Football continues on 105.5 FM and WNSP.com. Call in now at 694-1055 or join in the discussion on the WNSP app. Welcome back to Talking Spring Football here with Scott Hunter and Tracy Turner and Going into the break, we were talking about the quarterback situation at Alabama and Auburn being a new situation in Auburn. A lot of talk has been, is there a starting quarterback even on campus yet, or will he hit the transfer portal and then join the Auburn Tigers? And Tracy, I'll start with you first, because Auburn started spring football first. Is Auburn's starting quarterback on campus now, or will we have to wait to the summertime to see if the signal caller for the Auburn Tigers is yet to be named? Well, I think if the right person became available in the portal, I believe Coach Freeze said that Auburn is open to the portal. I expect they'll probably take two or three more people when the portal opens back up for, what, 30 days in May? Is that right? May yeah. 1st through the 30th, something like that? Maybe yes, it's just 15 days, but it'll open back up for a short period of time. I expect they'll take a couple, you know, a couple, three more, maybe four. They've already had, uh, let's see, three guys, I think, leave since spring started, two linebackers. So clearly they'll be in the market looking for linebackers. They didn't. They didn't sign any high school linebackers. They did bring in transfer linebackers. So I think I understand they've already extended over 15 linebacker offers for the 24 class. So, uh, you know, last week was a big change at quarterback. Uh, the Holden, uh, Guernier, the redshirt freshman, took some big steps forward, had a really good uh, scrimmage on, on uh, what was that, Friday, last Friday. You know, so he, he was a four-star recruit. He, he, he has the kind of ability he threw at Auburn's Pro Day, and a number of pro scouts were impressed with his arm strength and his touch. So uh, we'll see how that develops. But I, I, don't, I don't think you can say for sure that Auburn's starting quarterback is on the staff. I think if the right guy showed up, 
they would certainly be interested. Well, I know you have to go with what you have currently in front of you, and that is Robbie Ashford and T.J. Finley. And as we go through the differences between those two quarterbacks, which one do you think has a better handle so far on Hugh Freeze's system or based on what you've seen Hugh Freeze's system be at Liberty and at Ole Miss, which one of these two quarterbacks do you like better? Well, I, I believe that uh, Robbie could be more like Malik Willis if, in fact, he can develop, as Scott says, the it and throw in the ball. He has plenty strong enough arm, but he's just not super accurate. And we talked, we did talk about this before we broke and then came back. Now the Buffalo Bills quarterback was, you know, somewhat that way. He had a cannon for arm and still does, but he was not super accurate with the hit on him coming out of college. And his accuracy has improved, you know, tenfold. So I, I think that if if Robbie's accuracy could improve that he could he could be the guy but frankly I think if if the starter is going to be on campus it's going to be the redshirt freshman and I don't know how he pronounces his last name I'm just going to call him Holden how about that hey that works for us here Tracy <laughs> and when I was talking with Scott we were talking about the Alabama quarterback battle of course everybody knows about Jalen Milrow having something on film for the Crimson Tide last year getting an opportunity to start under center and Ty Simpson and the differences that these quarterbacks will bring to Alabama's system Scott I know it's di totally different. They're not the same type of quarterback as as you, as, as themselves. Like Ty Simpson being the same type of quarterback as Jalen Milrow. They they no, have different uh, roles. Yes, too. Uh, uh, Milrow showed us that he can really run well. I mean, Arkansas game last year when he filled in, um, did a good job along that line. Uh, but he did not impress us as a downfield passer that throws the ball, uh, reads coverages, gets rid of the ball in a hurry to open guys coming off the break. Uh, he just didn't impress us as that kind of, of downfield passer. And maybe in, a, in an RPO system where the quarterback was asked to run the ball 15 or so times and throw it 15 or 20 times, uh, Milrow would be the decided uh, quarterback, probably leading quarterback contender in that kind of system, but it's not that kind of system in Alabama. It's a, it's a system where kind of like Tua uh, and Mac made famous uh, and so forth that, you know, you get back, you read the coverage, you throw the ball, hit those guys off the break, they get a chance to catch the ball and run with it. Uh, and timing is everything. And to be able to, to recruit the kind of receivers you want to have in that kind of passing system, you got to throw them the ball, as you were uh, talking about during the break. They have to be thrown the ball. And consequently, um, I, I think it, it, Alabama's not going to get away from that kind of passing system and offensive system with the new offensive coordinator. Um, they're going to stay, stay with that because they recruited toward that. They've got the type athletes on the – and wide receivers to do that. And so they're going to keep on throwing the ball with that kind of system. So whoever comes out of spring training having uh, mastered that system and throwing in that system is going to probably go into August as the starting quarterback. 
so that's the best I can say about that. There'll be a scrimmage that I'll be up. Uh, the A-Club guys and all Red Elephant Club guys are always invited to a closed scrimmage up there the week before the A-Day game. And, frankly, you see more on that Saturday scrimmage than you do on the A-Day game. Nick is kind of – keeps a lid on things in the A-Day game since it's you know, open to everybody. But I'll see that, and we'll see what kind of progress Ty Simpson has made. I think we kind of know, you know, what – we sort of know what no Jalen Milrow can do and will do, but we don't know what Ty Simpson can do. I only saw him in the game a little bit, and there was no serious moments in the game. I've seen him in, in practice some. Uh, scrimmage and he looked good throwing the football. He got the ball out of his hand in a hurry. Obviously knows how to read coverages. And advantage he has since Alabama is going to have a you know still have a, a downfield passing offense, more of a pro style, is you know he is a coach's son, and the coach at I forget Middle Tennessee mm-hmm. wherever his dad coaches you know threw the ball had a real high powered throwing uh, system. And so he came up learning about that, and therefore I think he's probably going to have an advantage because he's studied and played in high school and that kind of system. I'm looking forward to, you know, iron sharpens iron, and you want to have that type of competition that makes you better. And and there's been situations as Nick Saban as the head coach to where no one really knew who the starting quarterback was going to be until the week prior to preparing for their first game of the season. And when you have that type of battle that goes on that late, I think as media members, it does give us a lot to talk about. But at the same time, that means that what is the margin for error for for these quarterbacks and in the spring and in practices? And can they command a team, like you mentioned, Scott, as the quarterback position commanding a team. When you come out of spring training, you're going to know who your starting right guard is going to be when the fall comes around or your left outside linebacker. You, you, you pretty much know that. You don't know who your quarterback is going to be until you put them in a game and they perform. They may look all world in spring training in, in August – but, man, when you put them out there in a game in front of 75, 85, 100,000, and you, then you see how they perform. And that's how a quarterback both wins the job and keeps the job. And it ain't about practice. I know he's got to get good in practice and got to work hard in practice and all that. But you win. And that is the one job on the, on, the, on the football field. You win in a game, not in practice. Well, one of the things when we get back from this break of talking spring football, we want to talk about the strengths of these two teams, Alabama and Auburn, going into the spring and really coming out of the spring. Will their strengths still be their strengths? And Alabama, I think it's important for them to establish the running game once again, and they'll have a nice, strong stable of running backs. Auburn to protect the quarterback so where he's not running for his life and we'll focus on the offensive line of Auburn as well as the running back room of the Alabama Crimson Tide when we come back from talking spring football here on WNSP 105.5. 
Hi, this is Monty Burke, author of Saban, The Making of a Coach. You're listening to WNSP Sports Radio 105.5 FM. Talking Spring Football continues on 105.5 FM and WNSP.com. Call in now at 694-1055 or join in the discussion on the WNSP app. Welcome back to Talking Spring Football with Scott Hunter along with Tracy Turner. And excited to be a part of Talking Spring Football because that means we're getting closer to the September kickoff, but it gives us a little peek and insight on what to expect. And we were talking going into the break about Auburn's biggest dilemma and what their strength was last year and what their weakness was last year. And of course, one of the glaring weaknesses for the Auburn Tigers was at the offensive line position, Tracy. And I think that's something that is still going to be a concern, but Coach Freeze definitely has addressed that in the transfer portal as well as just creating depth and giving guys an opportunity to prove that this was a fluke last year having Auburn's quarterback run for his life. Well, no question about that. And, uh, you know, I'm not at the point to say I think that the offensive line will be a strength of the team, but it even Coach Freeze knows that he's better. And uh, I think, as he said, we'll have to wait and see if we're good enough now to compete with Georgia's and Alabama's and Florida's and, and LSU's. But, you know, you bring a kid in from Tulsa, uh, Dylan Wade, that's going to be, you know, one of the top uh, five or six looked at left tackles. So that makes you better. You bring a kid in from Western Kentucky where they threw the ball, what, 500 times? Yeah. Something like that. I mean, we unfortunately know what Western Kentucky did to our uh, Jags, right? Yes, sir. In the, in the New Orleans Bowl. So, uh, and, and he played left and right tackle. That's uh, Gunner Britton. So you got him. You got him lined up as your right tackle. So right there, you've got two guys uh, that have proven they can protect the quarterback now. Whether they can protect the quarterback at the SEC level, we'll have to find out, right? Absolutely. They, they, they've proven they can protect the quarterback in the level they were playing at multiple times. So that makes you better. And then, of course, they go get Avery Jones from East Carolina, who had committed and was going to play at Illinois until Coach Freeze got the job. And so now you've got a center, so you start strong up the middle. You got two tackles, so you're strong there. You've got what people considered the best lineman on the Auburn team last year, Jeremiah Wright from Selma. You know, big guy, huge guy, mean streak, really mean streak. You got him at one guard, and then you're trying to decide who the other guard is. And it looks like right now, the uh, kid who was started at center last year, Tate Johnson, is going to be your other guard. He's recovered from his hyperextended elbow he suffered against Missouri. And now you have some depth with the Juco tackle, um, you, you know, some other guys. So don't know how good they'll be, just know they're better. 
and that's what you want to see. Really. Yeah, well, well I, I, and that's that's just out of all honesty, and I appreciate that honesty, and I know a lot of Auburn fans do as well. And, Scott, we were talking about one of the strengths of the Alabama Crimson Tide, and will it be the running back room for Alabama as when you start looking at Justice Hayes, the freshman from Buford, Georgia, coming in, Roy Dale Williams making his return along with Jace McClellan, I think the biggest thing for Alabama is can they stay healthy at the running back position? Well, that's always the question, you know, particularly now that college football is not just 10 games, but 11, 12, 13, 14, when you get the playoffs and so forth. So, uh, that's, but that's one thing that Coach Saban, I think, manages a running back position very well. Even when he's had Heisman Trophy caliber running backs, the you know he'll give them maybe 20 carries or so in a game, give the backup guy 12 or 15 carries, and so he didn't burn up, uh, burn up the best running back. He plays three deep uh, with his running back, so. You look at Alabama not as a, a starter and a second-teamer and a third-teamer, but look at them as a starter, a co-starter, and then somebody who's going to relieve both of them. Where Alabama, I think, comes up a little short, and obviously this was uh, shown by last year, particularly in the Texas game, uh, they haven't had the big third-down and short goal line back that can blast up in there 235 240 can blast up there and make three yards on any time if he whether he's got a hole or doesn't have a hole and it almost cost him the texas game so i would hope that somebody out of that group uh maybe puts on a little more muscle in the weight room in the off season here and, and could make those plays or make those first downs when it, on third fourth down and two and third down and two and three and or down at the goal line when it's um, third and goal at the three can make those plays and that, I think that's the key thing to look at at the running back position for Alabama. Alabama ends the season last year at 11 and two and of course the come from behind win against K-State was the last opportunity we saw Alabama on the football field. It was a big win in the All-State Sugar Bowl against K-State, but the losses last year, you mentioned losing to Tennessee and the Volunteers on the road finding a way to finally beat the Alabama Crimson Tide, and of course the one-point loss to LSU. I think that going in, do you think that Coach Saban in the past, you've, you've seen pyramids or posters on the wall saying finish that Alabama's going to have to find a way to use that as motivation whether they like it or not you look at their two losses LSU and Tennessee coming one and two point losses or three point loss to Tennessee and a one point loss to LSU rather well the key thing is you lost SEC games it's okay say if you play Texas up in early in the season as Alabama does what is it September the 15th or 10th or something of that nature you know by chance if texas comes in upsets alabama but it's, but it's not an sec game and that's where the key thing is if alabama beats lsu even after getting upset by tennessee and knoxville last year if they beat lsu they're still in the national championship hunt uh, but they wind up on the heels of the Tennessee upset, they wind up losing to LSU by one point. So 
two losses in the SEC. You're playing Kansas State in the almost so-so. Where did it, where did it go, Bowl? And not to say the Sugar Bowl wasn't a great trip because Deborah and I went down there and had a good time with sure. our friends and who we took from New York, and they'd never been to my game and all that. That's great. But that was the also must, should have been, could have been Bowl for Alabama. Well, when you start talking about Auburn's record, Tracy, 5-7 and seven overall, and Auburn – Again, with the coaching change that they made in the middle of the season, I know that, you know, taking over, having the big-time win over Western Kentucky, having the big-time win at Jordan-Hare Stadium against Texas A&M, I think that this team, with what they have returning, I think they're going to continue to learn too because I, I know that they're tired of hearing – we need to be back to playing for an SEC championship and five and seven and going to the Birmingham Bowl is not acceptable even in year one for Hugh Freeze. <laughs> you know, it's it's hard to think about what you're exactly going to do. You you sort of look at the schedule, and um, the schedule has some possibilities. Let's put it that way: to to win enough games to to keep momentum. Uh, keep you competitive on the recruiting trail. So, uh, you know, right now I know that Coach Freeze is just, all he's talking about is trying to get them to align right and to get their assignment and to have the effort that they got to have. That's what he's preaching is alignment, assignment, and effort. Uh, when you get those things down, then you'll start coming up with game plans to try to win. But he, uh, you know, I think he feels fine on his defensive line. I think he feels like he's going to be pretty salty in the secondary. But uh, other than that, you, you've got to have somebody that can at least turn and hand it off and, and then make the throws that you have to make. Auburn last year missed throws that were there, and they just missed them. And I, I keep going back, and Scott knows how I've, he's heard this, but, you know, Alabama lost to Clemson in a national championship game. And they had been setting up a deep throw the whole second half. Uh, they finally get it, and Alabama guy is wide open, you know, four or five yards behind for a touchdown, and he gets overthrown. And there's no interference. There's nothing other than you're behind the chains now on should be a touchdown. Those kind of plays have to be touchdowns in modern football because if you're going to you're going to win the national championship. See, what Alabama lose to LSU? 32-31? Yes, sir. What was the Tennessee game? 52-49? to I think Scott talked about this. Mm -hmm. You have to have an offense that you feel like you can score 30 points, or I don't think you have any chance of winning the national championship. Well, we love and, and that's on anybody you play. You're exactly right about that, Scott. And when you look at September 2nd being the magic date for both of these teams, Middle Tennessee coming into Tuscaloosa, getting ready to play the Alabama Crimson Tide. UMass coming into Jordan-Harris Stadium. Two great warm-up games as far as you never want to overlook your opponent, but getting ready for that next game, the next week for Alabama being Texas September 9th and going on the road to Cal for the Auburn Tigers. You know, we, we love to hear from you here on Talking Spring Football. 251-694-1055 for sure. So, Coach Stallings is sitting there, and it's a couple of weeks or a week before the Tennessee game, and one of the young reporters, I forgot what, 
newspaper or TV station he was with, I think it was a TV station reporter, they, I, they'd beaten up, you know, no, just a nobody that day, and Tennessee was coming up after her open date or something, and the young reporter up there in the fir- first row, we could all see that, he, boy, he was excited to get that first question in to Coach Stalling. Here comes Coach Stalling in all disheveled, hair all, you know, side, <laughs> shirt tail half out. And so he, all right, any questions, you know, kid throws up his hand and says, hey, coach, since this wasn't a big game today, I guess y'all are really, y'all are really concentrating on Tennessee in two weeks and blah, blah, blah. And he looked down and he said, son, you don't think this was a big game? Lose it and see how big it is. And exactly. <laughs> so, couldn't, couldn't be so every game, it. even Middle Tennessee State, I know you, you say it's a warm-up, but it's in a sense, it's those kind of games are the kind of games to go out there and, and play perfect because that's the way you've got to play against a Texas or an LSU or a Tennessee to win. When we come back from talking spring football, we'll put the finishing touches of our first edition of talking spring football again, probably about five weeks left before we'll have a complete picture of what Alabama and Auburn both will look like going into the summertime and their summer workouts and continue that fifth quarter program. You're listening to Talking Spring Football here on WNSP 105.5 with Corey LeBounty, Scott Hunter, and Tracy Turner. Hi, my name is Sherman Williams, former running back for the University of Alabama and the Dallas Cowboys. And I wake up each morning listening to WNSP 105.5. Talking Spring Football continues on 105.5 FM and WNSP.com. Call in now at 694-1055 or join in the discussion on the WNSP app. Welcome back to Talking Spring Football with Scott Hunter along with Tracy Turner. And, of course, you can call us every Tuesday from 5 to 6 when we're talking spring football, 251-694-1055. If you have questions for Scott and or Tracy that you would like answered about Alabama and Auburn possibilities coming into this spring. And every Tuesday after the final drive from 5 to 6, We'll be talking spring football with Scott and Tracy, and I look forward to it because what you see is the practices that go in and the development and the reps that are trying to keep everyone healthy in the spring. I think that's key, too. And you know those guys who have already had the surgeries that are going to be non-contact guys that won't go full speed until the, the spring or until the fall starts but we talked about Alabama and Auburn's strength and weaknesses and guys with having about three and a half minutes left Tracy one of the strengths for Auburn is their secondary and I think that that's something that they're going to continue to build on and for Alabama again they're still looking for that alpha dog defensively well to Tracy yeah well I'll just quickly say on Auburn there's their special teams, which is always important, will be good. I think they'll be, you know, pretty good on defense as long as they don't get put in holes like they did at times last year and, and they, a lot expected of them. But Auburn will be as good as the quarterback they find. 
if they find a quarterback that can complete 60-something percent of his passes and he throws two times as many or more touchdowns, and he, I mean, he doesn't have to be Bryce and what was Bryce, 40 and 4 or 5 or something, 40 touchdowns. No, just, uh, you know, 20 and 6, something like that, completing 62%, all going to be a, a pretty good football team. But you can't complete 49% of your passes and throw more interceptions than touchdowns. You're, you're not, you'll be 5 and 7. <laughs> so <laughs> it's pretty simple for Auburn. You know, Alabama this past fall, one area they fell off terribly was turnovers. Yeah. Uh, they, the interceptions and, and fumbles. Uh, generally, Alabama teams, good Alabama teams, that was a good Alabama team last year. Even they did lose to Tennessee and LSU. Was, You know, they always had a, a really good, what do you call it, ratio of turnover turnovers margin. to the other team. And last year it was just terrible, terrible. And turnovers um, – you know, it's not something you can coach. It's something you can plan. Turnovers, turnovers are something you make happen, and then you take advantage of them when you get your opportunity. So this team, last defensive team last year, just didn't make turnovers happen. So I'm thinking that's the thing that, that Alabama coaches are going to start emphasizing in the spring is creating turnovers, uh, uh, the defense and obviously, to, for the defense to create turnovers and make turnovers, make turnovers happen. So that's one thing you can't – again, you can't say, oh, we, boy, we're going to get X amount of turnovers here and X amount of that. No, you got to go out and make them happen, and I think the coaches are going to work toward that. You talked about special teams. Will Riker deciding not to go to the NFL and come back to Alabama. That's, that's, that's huge. Uh, because yeah. he's a definitely a difference maker, and I think 24 of 26 this past fall. Or something if like he that. missed four, if he missed four, I, I mean, right. I, I know for a fact he went through a little drought there to where people were asking what's wrong with Will. But yeah. as a whole, that that is huge when you start talking about special well, teams. That third part that gets overlooked. They, they don't beat Texas without Will Rocker, you know, hitting that field goal and all and. He wasn't. He wasn't called upon like that kind of situation, you know, down in the season that many times. But he he comes through and makes the field goal when he's got to. But having somebody come back like that, that you know, if you're sitting there tied with LSU and Tuscaloosa, you know, 38 to 38 with 30 seconds to go, and you got the ball at your 35, 40 yard line, and you know all you got to get it to is the other to LSU's 30 because Will Reichert is going to peg it, then that's where you play it. Well, we're looking forward to talking spring football every single Tuesday here on WNSP from 5 to 6 with Scott Hunter. and Good Tracy job, Corey. Tur thank you so much. I appreciate it All again. Right, Corey. Thank you. Thank you, guys. And, again, want to send our condolences to Marty McDowell's family. The legendary Hall of Famer in Mississippi State passes away at the age of 63. So our condolences to Marty McDowell and his family, a Mobile, Alabama icon. Don't forget, tune in tomorrow for the final drive and, of course, the opening kickoff with Lee and Mark tomorrow morning. <laughs>